As you probably know, one of the great keys to praying with the gospel well is to read it not simply as a historical text, but to look at it in terms of a spiritual analogy. Like, what can the gospel text teach me in terms of drawing certain analogies of faith, if you will, to help me apply my faith to kind of everyday concrete circumstances? Case in point, think about this really famous story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, the story of the three kings, the three magi, which of course is typically associated with the epiphany of our Lord. So when you look at this particular story, again, the story of the three kings, the three magi who travel from the far east to the little town of Bethlehem to give honor to the Christ child. If you break it down, the various characters in the story, they represent um, three key uh, responses that you find in society to the reality of God. So the three magi or the three kings obviously embody the first character or group of characters in the story. And they represent obviously people who respond favorably to God's presence, who respond favorably to his grace. So that's kind of the first category of persons. And of course, the second character is King Herod, who represents obviously people who are hostile to divine things, which brings us to the third character. Now, the third character is not explicitly mentioned in the story, but basically the third character, if you will, is everybody else, right? And so if you think about it, if you read between the lines, the vast majority of people in the story who aren't explicitly mentioned again in the story, they see the star, but they do nothing, right? They're completely indifferent. So they see the star perhaps in the sky, but then they go back to the ancient equivalent of eating their TV dinners. Now, this third category of persons, again, people who are basically indifferent to the reality of God, they point to this spiritual reality, this recurring problem in the spiritual life, essentially of sloth, right? Now, sloth is one of these concepts in theology, which is often quoted, but often very much misunderstood at the same time. So a lot of people think that sloth is basically the same thing as laziness or the same thing as basically doing nothing, which is kind of misleading. So specifically, if we want to define it, basically sloth is indifference, not just to life in general, but specifically to spiritual things. Indifference to spiritual things, indifference to spiritual realities, essentially indifference to the things of God. And you see, once you understand this, once you understand this particular concept as to what sloth actually means, perhaps you might begin to appreciate that a person can be busy in the context of his life, perhaps even frantically so, perhaps, for example, staying late recurrently at work on a regular basis, while at the same time being massively guilty of the sin of sloth. Because again, sloth has nothing to do with laziness, it has nothing to do with simply doing nothing. It is more about, again, being indifferent to spiritual realities, spiritual things, essentially the things of God, things of ultimate concern. Indifference to such questions as, who am I? Where am I going? And therefore, how am I supposed to get there? Which, of course, influences what I would do right now in the present moment in the context of ordinary life. To illustrate the point, think about the reality of school confessions. So um, when you go to hear confessions as a priest in schools, um, typically what you hear is something like this. Um, I've been rude and or disobedient to my parents. Uh, I've uh, mistreated my siblings and I've not been nice to my classmates. I've not been nice to my neighbors, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's fine in terms of you know, constituting a valid confession, but at the same time, it, it's somewhat lacking. Because it seems to imply that the reason why Christ suffered all those things, the reason why he endured all those terrible things on the cross, was so that we might simply be nice. Simply be nice to our family, simply be nice to our friends. Which, if you think about it, even conceptually, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, in the context of school confessions, depending on how old the kids are, typically what I'll say to them if they're dealing with this particular issue is I'll say that one way to look at the sacrament of confession is to compare it actually to the rite of exorcism. 
So a lot of these exorcism movies, quite frankly, are, are kind of messed up, right? So they, they convey a certain reality when it comes to the right of exorcism, which isn't entirely true. But something that you often find in these films, on the other hand, which actually is correct, is this idea of naming the demon, right? So um, just to think it through, here's this exorcist, he's performing the rite of exorcism. And a key prerequisite to casting out the demon is to figure out the name of the demon, right? And once you find it out, then you cast out that demon by its name in the name of Christ. And you see, what this means, practically speaking, is that when I go to the sacrament confession, I, I shouldn't just stay in the periphery, you know, naming things like, you know, I wasn't nice or I wasn't kind. But instead, I need to have the courage and the wherewithal to essentially name my demons, to name those sins, to name those various habits of sin, which are essentially keeping me in bondage, to bring those things up in the sacrament confession and to cast out those demons, if you will, in the name of Christ. Mindful of the fact that what does Christ want for us? He wants us to be fully human and therefore fully alive. And of course, surprise, surprise, that's precisely what you find in the context of the gospel time and time again. So think, for example, of the calling of the first disciples, which you find in the context of the gospel of John chapter 1, right? So here's John the Baptist. He sends his disciples to the Lord. So he says, behold, the Lamb of God, and he sends them over, right? And when those guys go over to Christ, Christ poses to them a question. What are you looking for, right? Appealing to their deep desires, the deep longings in their hearts. And what did they say in response? They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Rabbi, where are you staying? Father John Ricardo talks about this in the sense of saying that, you know, when you break it down, when, when they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? What they're saying to the Lord essentially is, um, we don't know. We don't know what we're searching for. We don't know what we're looking for. We're not really sure what are the deepest desires of our hearts. But at the same time, we know that somehow the realization of these desires, these dreams, these hopes, however you want to frame it, they are caught up in, in you. They're caught up in the person of Christ. So can we figure out where you're staying to kind of linger in your presence and listen to your word? If you read between the lines, by the end of the story, they realize that, yeah, he's the one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Messiah. He is the one living and true God. And you know that because the gospel ends with them essentially naming the time. It was the 10th hour. This was the time. This was the day that our lives were changed forever. Okay, one final example, just to kind of drive the point home and to kind of bring the thing full circle. So just to go back to that gospel that we said at the outset, the gospel of Luke chapter 2, the story of the three kings, which you find obviously recurringly in the context of the epiphany of our Lord. So again, you look at those three categories of people, right? So King Herod, the three kings, and then the people who are basically indifferent to the reality of the Christ child, which begs the question, why the difference? And specifically, you know, why did the three kings, why did the three magi respond and go on this perilous journey when everyone else responded either with hostility or complete indifference? Well, Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, talks about this in the first volume of his Jesus of Nazareth series. And so basically what he says is that um, these people, these magi, these three kings, these men from the East, they had deep desire. They had a restless heart, each one of them, right? And they weren't simply content to say that, you know, we have deep desires and we have a restless heart. They actually did something about it. They decided to leave their homes, their places of comfort and security, and go on this, again, perilous mission in search of something that they know not what, right? Not unlike the first disciples, you know, encountering the Lord in the context of the Gospel of John chapter 1, right? So um, I, I know what's in my heart. I know this. I have this deep longing, again, this deep restlessness. And, and rather than and simply do nothing and distract myself, for example, with busyness, uh, I, I resist the sin of sloth and go forth in pursuit of that which will actually satisfy, again, the deepest longings of my hearts. 
And of course, they end up finding and encountering and giving homage to the Christ child. But then you see what's interesting is that Pope Benedict concludes his great meditation on this particular passage in the gospel by saying something really profound and extremely complimentary about the three kings. So he says, because these men essentially had the courage and the wherewithal to leave behind again their places of security, to go on this great adventure, to satisfy the deep longings in their hearts, that's why throughout the history of Christendom, from that point on, people always will remember them, not simply as astronomers. What they will say about them is that these men were wise. And may God bless you all.